Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Maria Smilios, who is a native of New York City and who holds a Master's of Arts from Boston University in Religion and Literature, where she was a Henry Liu Scholar and a Presidential Scholar. She also taught essay and research writing in the university's writing program. In 2007, she left Boston and moved back to New York City to teach at an all-girls high school, and she also created and ran an intensive summer writing program for teens. Maria also formerly worked as a developmental editor in the biomedical sciences, editing books in lung disease, pediatric and breast cancer, neurology, and ocular diseases. In the past, she has written for The Guardian, American Nurse, Narratively, The Rumpus, Day Magazine, and The Forward, among others. Today, we're discussing her first book, The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis, which will be out on September the 19th, 2023, by Penguin Random House. Ms. Smilios, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? The Black Angels were a group of African-American nurses who answered a call to come and work at Seaview Hospital, New York's largest municipal TB sanatorium on Staten Island, and they became instrumental in helping to find a cure for tuberculosis. Now, how did, why did you select the Black Angels as your topic? How did you come across their story, and why did you choose to share it? Well, to start, it, the topic kind of found me. I was working as a developmental editor, editing a book on lung diseases when I came across a line that said the cure for tuberculosis was found at Seaview Hospital. Being a lover of New York City history and anything that had to do with disease in hospitals, I didn't know this part of medical history. And so I began Googling it and up came an article and tucked alongside of it was another article about a woman, Virginia Allen, who at the time was 86 and belonged to a group of African-American nurses called the Black Angels. That piqued my interest. And so I set out to find out anything I could about her and this group of nurses. Eventually, after 
a lot of futile searches. I called the Staten Island Museum and they told me she was going to do an exhibit at their grand reopening. This was in mid-August. And so I went and we talked and weeks later, she invited me to her home in Staten Island, which is the restored nurses residence where she had lived when she worked at Seaview some 60 years earlier. And she began to tell me snippets of this extraordinary story. And then she asked me if I could tell it. And so I thought it was important to know because this is a story about women in science, specifically black female nurses working in a New York City municipal sanatorium and caring for patients comprised of the city's poorest and most marginalized classes. And historically speaking, our society has been conditioned to structure narratives about medical discoveries around male doctors and scientists. Anyone else involved most of the time remains a silent bystander. And so I thought this story of these women who were working on the front lines have been completely erased. And that was one of the draws to wanting to tell this story. And so... I think to answer why I selected it, it was that reason, it was that Virginia had asked me to tell the story and it was that it had remained confined to Staten Island as an oral history. And oral histories can tell us so much about the past because Virginia was a black angel and she is living history. And so I thought this story needs to be written down because Virginia at some point is going to pass and the families of the nurses who were so gracious to share their lives with me are also going to pass and then the story is going to be lost. And that's so interesting because you mentioned oral history. It is such a large component of your narrative. Now, what sources besides those oral did you use and what were some of the challenges, especially of delving into the archives, and also doing the oral history component for this book. So the nurse's story had no archives. There were no memoirs or scrapbooks or journals that were left behind by these nurses. I was fortunate enough to have Virginia, whose aunt Edna was one of the first nurses to come up from the South. And so Virginia remembered, I don't want to say a lot, remembered enough about her aunt. Also, Edna's son was alive, and he remembered his mom. And she was able to give me names that pointed me to other people. And so that's how the nurse's story came together. That was really an oral history. And I also used newspapers. There were medical books on tuberculosis. There were medical articles, the primary sources on nursing. Um, there were books on black history in America from the turn of the century through to the 1950s. I looked at civil lists, photographs, magazines, radio, news segments, and that's how the oral history came together. And it wasn't necessarily all focused on nursing, but on the larger landscape of, of the time period these nurses were working. Overall, how difficult would you say the research process was? Very. It was meticulous and at, time, at times painstakingly slow. 
to corroborate and cross-check the stories. And by corroborating, I mean verifying dates, salaries, statistics, working conditions, locations, worldly events, and when possible, small details. So for instance, Edna's family told me that she enjoyed sitting by the window when she rode the train from Harlem. I love that detail, but I wanted to make sure that it was correct. And so what I was able to do was I checked the city lists and I saw where she lived at the time. And I looked at subway maps, which showed me the train that she took and archival photographs and documents confirmed the route of the train. It was an elevated train. I knew which neighborhoods it passed over. And from this information, I was able to place her on a seat by the window. Um, and I should add this, my editor and I and my agent decided not to disavow anyone's personal experience regarding their feelings. So if one of the trial patients or Virginia told me they felt a particular way, I believe that. And I think that's important when you're working with oral history, that to separate the fact from the feeling. I agree. I most definitely agree with that assessment. As you were writing the book, The Black Angels, whose work influenced your own? That's a great question, and I could take hours to answer it. <laughs> so for this project, different writers influenced the way I approach different aspects of the story. For the nurses, I would safely narrow it down to the modernists, Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston, Virginia Woolf, Langston Hughes, Jean Toomer, W.E.B. Du Bois, T.S. Eliot, and more contemporary writers like Margaret Atwood and Alice Walker. They, in many ways, inspired me and sort of, I just love how they write. And I felt, for some reason, I kept reaching for these writers again and again as I was writing that part of the story. When thinking about Seaview and the vast complex of buildings, I would say it was Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and Ann Patchett's The Dutch House, because both of those stories do an extraordinary job of rendering the building as a living, breathing entity. And Seaview was a living, breathing entity. Virginia described it as a small city. I also drew inspiration from Sam Beckett's structure of a closed space narrative when writing about the wards, because even though they were open wards, meaning there are no rooms, imagine this, two rows of beds, on each side and beds running down the middle of the aisle and separating each bed is a small nightstand. But that's the only, in, and although the ward is open, it's the only space that these people, these patients could live in. And so it is a closed space narrative. Um, there were not many patient narratives about tuberculosis, sadly. So for that, I turned to other medical narratives and memoirs and fiction Suleika Jaoud's Between Two Kingdoms, which chronicles her fight with leukemia, Paul Kalianthi's When Breath Becomes Air, and Marie Howe's What the Living Do, and also Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet were really great pieces of literature for me to look at how people talked about sickness and, and being in a hospital and how they reckoned with mortality and time. And I also read a lot of poetry because I love the way poets use language, and I believe poetry sometimes can help us hone down ideas and thoughts. I definitely agree with that. Um, poets, they can 
share a lot with us. Now, in terms of who were the Black Angels? Who were they? In short, they were a group of Black nurses who were called up from the Jim Crow South when white nurses began quitting Seaview Hospital in 1929, and the city faced a public health crisis if they could not fill the ranks of nurses. And most of them held professional degrees but could not find work because of the strictures of Jim Crow and the quotas of hospitals. At the time, Black nurses were only allowed to work in Black hospitals. If they were hired at white hospitals, it was usually one or two, and they were berated and in many ways emotionally and psychologically abused by white supervisors. And so these were professional women who wanted work. What's interesting, you know, as I was reading the book, you're, it covers so much of history and African-American history. You're talking about, you know, I was thinking about as Etna was coming up from the South, part of the Great Migration, uh, Harlem during this time. You covered the Great Depression, um, World War One, World War II. You're talking about Jim Crow. And, you know, it's so int intricately intertwined with the narrative of these women's lives. You did that seamlessly, I must say, because, you know, as a scholar of African-American history, this it was so marvelously done that you could understand the challenges that these women faced during that time. So I want to ask you, you know, how much, how important was it for you to include, to include the historical narratives that were going on during this time? It was extremely important. As you mentioned, the timeline for this book is big. It starts in the 20s and it ends in 1952 when the cure was announced by mistake, I should add, at Seaview Hospital. And during that time, there were so many historic events, all of which were important to the overall narrative. Early on, I knew it would be vital to set this story against the backdrop of each of these rousing moments in history, not only to create a richer and more nuanced picture of the nurse's story, but also because these moments affected everyone involved in the story, the doctors who were searching for a cure, the patients in a hospital, the shifting landscape of New York City and the perception of the disease. And so without the broader historical pictures that, I'm sorry, without the broader historical backdrop, I thought the story wouldn't have the same kind of impact that it would if it were set against these events. I agree. I mean, it was just, you could truly, it was like walking into the a historical time war and you could clearly picture in your mind and visualize what was going on and what the experiences of the nurses were during the time. And one of the many things that you did well was show the challenges and the racism that the Black nurses encountered. Can you share a little bit about this? And I'm thinking of, you know, after, I remember particular as after Edna goes 
from the South through the Great Migration, you're going to the North, which you think of as this should be this great opportunity. But no, the first place that she encounters, she has a supervisor whose racist views were so firmly entrenched that there was no way around it. Yes. And so I was able to show the challenges because the families of the nurses were willing to talk to me about the racism that their aunts or grandmothers had encountered when they came north. And I should add that these conversations did not take place in one sitting. They took years and many times they were difficult and many times they came piecemeal. And so to speak to the specific instance that you're talking about, Miss Mitchell, who was the supervisor at Seaview, um, was in many ways your traditional white supervisor. She held the second highest position at Seaview. She was hired in 1929 to fill the thinning ranks and to keep the nurses. And so that was a hard job because tuberculosis nursing, it, from what I have read and what people have said, is quite boring. It's basically the same thing day in, day out. Um, you, you can also spend up to three hours bedside. So imagine this, a nurse starts their shift, they walk onto the ward, they get their cart, and they begin their day by doing the same thing. They, if the patient is not ambulatory, they have to bathe them, they have to shave them, they have to help them eat and brush their teeth, go to the bathroom, then they do the medication. These patients are depressed, they're angry. Sometimes it could take up to three hours. They have traveled. Most of them were coming from Harlem or somewhere else in the city. It could take anywhere from two to three hours round trip. And most importantly, they're working on a ward where every single breath is emitting live tuberculosis germs. So every breath from this patient is a threat to them. They don't have masks, gowns, gloves. And so every day that they showed up bedside was a risk. And so Ms. Mitchell's job was to retain and train a staff of elite nurses. Now, she did that because it was these nurses that helped with the cure. But in the interim, I, she was also the daughter of a Confederate medic from rural Virginia. And so her views also had been shaped probably by her father. Um, but Miss Mitchell was no different than any other typical white supervisor who saw black nurses as, quote, incompetent or, quote, immoral or any other derogatory term you could dream up was used to describe black nurses. One nurse said they were incapable, one nurse supervisor said they were incapable of keeping books, the log books. Another one said they were incapable of any kind of work which required them to not be supervised. So in other words, they could not be supervisors because they always had to be watched. Another one said they were thieves. And so Miss Mitchell had these views. And while she might have 
as Virginia said, trained a fabulous nursing staff. She also made their lives quite miserable in many ways. Just reading about her, uh, I can only imagine what they lived through by working with her. I wanted to ask you, though, how did Seaview Hospital come into existence? So the short answer to that is I would point to a man named Herman Biggs, who was the chief medical officer in New York City in 1903. And if we can imagine what 1903 New York City looked like, it was a time when every day thousands of people walked off grand liners from places in Europe and poured into the city. And many of them headed to New York's Lower East Side. This is a small neighborhood. And at the time, it was comprised of 80,000 tenement buildings, five or six stories high. And the apartments inside were no more than 300 square feet. And many were housing 10 to 12 people because whole families would come, including grandparents, aunts, cousins. And if there was a window, it looked out onto an air shaft. The city at the time was awash in smells and garbage, human excrement mixed with runoff from the slaughterhouses, and it covered the streets. It, dead animals were a common sight. The apartments did not have toilets. Instead, people shared one toilet, which was centered in the middle of the floor, most people worked in factories that had no ventilation, and the sky seemed to be a perpetual gray from the chimneys that spewed out coal and steam. And so this was an environment that was rife for the TB bacteria, which thrived in cool, dark places and on people who lived in close quarters. Anyhow, at the time, Herman Biggs decided he wanted to conquer tuberculosis in a single generation and nothing was going to stop him. So in 1903, he implored the city to build a hospital that would house what he called the incorrigible consumptives. And he held a meeting, broke down the cost of taking care of these, quote, incorrigible consumptives, who were mainly immigrants. And once the city saw how much it cost to keep, quote, these people alive, they did not hesitate to build his requested hospital, which would quarantine them on the island of Staten Island. And in 1913, the hospital opened. Wow. Um, that's, it's amazing that, you know, you have this hospital created specifically for this purpose, which you can understand the pros and cons of that, but it's what the hospital became. And that's so alarming and so troubling. And so I wanted to ask you, how did the story of the Black Angels delve into the connections between the, between economics and systemic racism that was occurring during that time. So on the most basic level, the Black nurses, when they were called up, were promised housing, a job in a non-segregated hospital in New York City, because I should add only four of the more than two dozen municipal hospitals hired Black nurses. The rest had quotas, or did everything they could not to hire them. And so when they came up, they were paid less than the white nurses. They were denied promotions and outright barred from joining the American Nurses Association until 1950. 
lower pay meant that their standard of living was also somewhat lower. And if they wanted to save to buy a home, it would take them twice as long. And so these things continued to keep the nurses at an unfair advantage and allowed those in power to keep lording over them. And so that's the sort of short answer between the economics and the systemic racism of these particular women. Now, the Black Angels, it also speaks to the public health inequities in American society. Can you share how that is? Sure. Seaview's patients were comprised largely of immigrants, African-Americans, and people on the fringes of society. These were populations which were heavily affected by poverty. And as we know, poverty affects health because it limits access to nutritious foods, proper housing, clean air and water, healthy working conditions, education, and medical care. And so by the time many came to Seaview, they had been sick for quite a while. Some of the reasons is they couldn't stop working. Some were they couldn't access proper medical care. And some were they were the caretakers or feared being ostracized by the community. And so they waited a long time and then they came to Seaview. And today we almost see the same situation when it comes to health inequities, right? It's the people who are unable to stop working, who are unable to afford medical care, who wait a long time to go seek medical care. And when we look at tuberculosis, it disproportionately affected society's most disenfranchised citizens. And the story of tuberculosis reveals how we depend on the very same vulnerable population to survive via essential labor and largely low-wage jobs. We saw this again with COVID. Who was going to work? It was the delivery people. It was the restaurant people. It was the people who were keeping the supermarkets open. These were low-wage, high-risk jobs. And the, the people working, nobody was really thinking that, oh, we need to protect them to keep the stores open. Um, and so when you look at that, that is economic inequality, but it's also public health inequity. I agree with that. I mean, you're correct. The people who were on the front lines during this time, those were the cashiers in the store because the everything needed to keep moving in some way, yet they weren't. Uh, their help was not prioritized as much. In your book, you did an excellent job of showing how the health system did not value the lives of Black Americans. Can you speak about this? And in my mind, I'm clearly thinking of those frontline Black nurses with a disposable Black body was not valued. Yeah. So there's a historical pattern that led to a health system that did not value the lives of Black Americans. The legacy of slavery, as with much of our country's institutional framework, set the precedent for the mistreatment of Black bodies in the centuries to follow. And perhaps the most egregious case of medical racism and abuse in America's history came a century later with the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study, which spanned 1932 to 1972, and it was sanctioned by the United States Public Health Service and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. During those decades, more than 400 Black men were recruited and used as test subjects for, quote, bad blood, 
a term that referred to a variety of ailments, when in reality, the government wanted to observe, quote, the natural history of untreated syphilis in black men. As we know now, the study violated the bioethical principles of respect for autonomy. The participants were not asked for their consent and of non-malfeasance, given that the antibiotic treatment was withheld from the participants even after it had become readily available. And when you look at history, there are many other incidents that happened that disregarded black bodies. The one I discuss in my book is the elixir tragedy. In this one, Dr. Samuel Massengill, who's best known for the Massengill douche, created an elixir from sulfa to treat strep throat and other infections. Sulfa had been used in pill form, but no one had managed to make it into a liquid because it was undissolvable. But Massengill and his chemist wanted to turn it into a liquid to give to children in the rural South. He was from Tennessee. And so they added diethylene glycol, which is a poisonous agent used in antifreeze to create a liquid form of the antibiotic. And then they added a raspberry flavor to it. And so it became this gorgeous red liquid. Without testing it to determine its efficacy or safety, they distributed it across the country where it was prescribed in rural and poor communities to catastrophic effects. It killed over 100 people, more, more than half were children and people of color. So it's no wonder then that the mistrust of healthcare system persists in many communities of color today. I would definitely agree with that because I'm just horrified as I was reading about that and also hearing you describe it, that you give this toxic chemical to children and you spruce it up with a little bit of strawberry flavor and think that's okay and that this was allowed to occur. So, you know, that you've answered my next question about, does this, do you think that the mistreatment of Black Americans out of the communicants cover have led to a mistrust of the healthcare system? And, you know, as I was thinking about this, the only thing that could come to mind, having lived through COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I wanted to ask you, how did that impact your writing of the Black Angels? I'm not sure if the advent of COVID-19 changed my approach to the book as much as it enhanced relevant themes of health disparities, failing in overcrowded municipal hospitals, patient populations comprised of immigrants and the poor and people of color, inequality in labor, especially with brown and black women, and of course, living with a fatal disease. What I am certain about is that COVID gave me a palpable sense of what it was like to live with a deadly airborne virus. Although I wish I could kind of say, I never wanted to live through that. And I think most of us didn't. Um, it turned us anxious and stirred our most potent fears in the same way tuberculosis had done for centuries. Um, and in America, inequity in healthcare has always existed, but for the most part, it remained hidden unless you lived it. And I think COVID pulled back the curtain and exposed the reality of a health system that had long been broken. It was one designed to care for some, but not the others, and one that was kept together largely by underpaid brown and black nurses. And so that did impact 
how I approach this book because I really wanted to pull up that theme and say, this has been going on for a really, really long time and we can't ignore it anymore. I agree. I mean, just there's, it's always been there, but as you say, that curtain, it was pulled back and there was a light that was shined on that for some even to this day, as we are in 2023, they still want to ignore, but it's there, you know, it's right in front of you. And it would be wise to, in some ways, pay attention to that. Um, and there's also something else that came up as I was reading. There were so many things that came to me as I was reading your book and I was thinking about COVID. There was this notion of pseudoscience versus science. And in the Black Angels, you discuss the role of pseudoscience in the curing of tuberculo tuberculosis. Can you share how and why these so-called cures became important during that time? And even, you know, as we're thinking about COVID, why those became so prevalent, prevalent again? The pseudoscience was a fascinating and rich subject for me. I was confounded by how much quackery and chicanery was directed at tuberculosis. I'll share some of the remedies that were touted mice boiled in salt and oil, drinks of petroleum and turpentine, slices of dog fat, ground up human eyeballs, leeches and tanner's oil, which is the runoff from slaughterhouses, were just a few of the remedies that people said cure tuberculosis. And while we register these, quote, treatments now as dangerous and frankly absurd, people flocked and will still flock to them, as you mentioned, because they want to live. And most important, the remedies are cheap. And so for people who don't have health care, who are considered part of the underclass or living on the fringes of society, they don't have a choice. And so they reach for these remedies. And when a person is facing mortality, even the most enlightened person runs the risk of becoming desperate and scared. And they're willing to make a Faustian bargain with any charlatan that promises they might live. And I think in the end, the bigger question isn't why people believe these charlatans, but why we don't have a robust healthcare system to undermine such falsehoods. I agree that, you know, you have to think about it and just not, as you say, having access to go and afford the treatment that you need, of course, you can go out and get something from the drugstore or something that's at the supermarket. And you read about something and say, okay, I'm going to try this because you do want to live. Um, and the bigger question, as you say, is how to find that balance within the healthcare system for all. Now, what do you think is the legacy of the Black Angels? I think part of the legacy is simply the people they helped and the cure and their impetus for integrating and making changes in nursing and medicine in general. Then maybe the most subtle and most important legacy is the significance between frontline labor and medical science. I will also add that all of them left a legacy to their families and the generations of nurses who came after them by helping to break down barriers and integrate the profession of nursing. With the book, Hopefully, they will become part of the official legacy of Seaview and the TB Cure narrative, 
which for over 70 years has been male-centered. Right. It's, you know, it's these women, they were marginalized in history. Um, And as you say, their legacy and their story was confined to a community story um, for the most part. Now, what are you working on next? I want to ask you, what's your next big project? Writing another book. Um, I came across some fantastic stories in my research, and so I'm hoping one of them pans out. But for the immediate future, I hope to keep talking about the Black Angels and their remarkable story. With publication, I anticipate more nurses, families, and patients coming forward and filling out the story in greater ways. I also hope to use the book and the lessons from the nurses to add to the larger and much needed conversations about health inequity, systemic racism, communicable diseases, and frontline labor, especially in nursing. I think in many ways, you know, the Black Angels, their story is so remarkable and it's so remarkable to me that it hasn't been told, previously been told, but if you were, and this is a book I want to say is for academics, it's also for non-academics alike. And if there was something that you want readers to take away from it, what would it be? Ultimately, this is a very human story. It's one of triumph, one that shows us how in times of great need, There are those who will selflessly risk their lives to take care of others and by doing so keep us safe. This is what the Black Angels did. And their actions then have not only saved tens of millions of lives, but they changed the course of history. And so when people read this story, I really hope that this is what they take away, the very human aspect of this story. Mrs. Smiles, I want to say thank you for joining me today. Thank readers. You. Sorry. No, you're fine. Um, I want to say, Mrs. Smiles, thank you for joining me today. It has been a pleasure talking about the Black Angels with you. And I try to do it in a way, listeners, so that we don't spoil what this incredible book offers you because it's, I think from my perspective and I'm someone who loves reading you have to truly experience the whole process so you have to read from start to finish and that is something that I wanted to try my best not to spoil any of the highlights um, from the book so Mrs. Smiles, thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure to talk about this book and these remarkable women. Mrs. Spalios, thank you so much for joining me today. Readers, please pick up a copy of The Black Angels to learn more about these remarkable women who helped cure tuberculosis. The work done by Mrs. Spalios has been incredible as she has sought to shed light on the accomplishments of women such as Virginia Allen, Edna Sutton, Missouri Lavinia Walker Meadow, to name a few whose story and lives have been marginalized for so long. These women helped change the profession of nursing and history. The book will be on sale September 19th, so I urge you to get a copy. 
It is for academics, non-academics, those in the medical profession, historians. There is something for everyone, and I assure you that you will not regret it.